of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. Yes, but don't dial right this second because AJ and Eric and Robert and Rosa all have that number memorized and they got in ahead of you. But we'll have a line available for you pretty shortly on this uh, nice Sunday morning. It's certainly overcast. Uh, I've had a couple of little rain showers move through, but uh, it's going to turn out to be a a very nice day. They're saying a sunny afternoon. And you remember yesterday morning when we were all wearing jackets or long sleeves at the very least? (laughs) We're supposed to be in the upper 80s today. So uh, what does that represent? Just about a 40-degree shift in a 24-hour period. Uh, Welcome to Texas. We do things. uh, We don't do anything in a small way in Texas. And when it comes to weather, well, I guess it's good that we don't have uh, any major storms or things like that we're looking at right now. But uh, (laughs) it certainly has been highly variable. So many things to talk about. I've got lots to talk about, but it's much more important what you've got to talk about. So let's just get started. It's going to be A.J., Eric, Robert, and Rosa. Good morning, A.J. Good morning, Bobby. I'm in a little time crunch this morning, so bear with me. I may stumble a couple of times. For the Blossom in Rot, is that two tablespoons of Epsom salt to a gallon of water? If you want to water your plants in to stop it, yes, sir, that is exactly right. I will tell you, when I plant my tomatoes, I do like two uh, handfuls of Epsom salts just sprinkled on the ground around the plant. So it goes a lot faster for me than trying to mix it up and water individual plants. So um, if you're... And if, if you're the plants are already to the point that you might be experiencing it, I think it's probably better to do it two tablespoons to a gallon of water. But if your plants are growing and not setting any fruit yet or anything, it'll go a lot faster and you can get on with the other situations if you uh, just put a couple of handfuls of it sprinkled around on the soil, AJ. So yeah, you've got the proportions right, but there is a, there is a little other, easier way to do it. Well, I forgot to put the Epsom salt down when I planted them. So, uh, but the, the second item I have, I've got a, a few pride of Barbados coming up in the garden, and I've been trying to take uh, plants, and I wet the ground around them and, and take them out as carefully as I can to set a plug of dirt into a small pot and then keep them watered. And i not having too good a look. What am I doing wrong? Well, Pride of Barbados, as you have discovered, has great big gnarly roots that spread out all over the place, and they are hard to transplant. I'd say when I work at transplanting, I probably have less than 50% success uh, in doing it myself. And uh, if you want more Pride of Barbados, you either need to try to get the tiniest little plants you can, basically seedlings that have just come up, or it's real easy to 
start them from seed and you know how many seed those things produce so i would this summer i'd pick some of those pods off save yourself 20 or 50 or 100 seed however many plants you want to start and i'd be doing them from seed rather than trying to uh rather than trying to transplant the plants because even the even the guys that are much smarter and more experienced than you and i they have trouble transplanting them so uh just if you get a transplant go with the smallest plants you can and do just what you're doing get the biggest amount of the root system you can water them in with super thrive or garret juice or something like that but uh even that you're still not going to have a real high percentage of success if you do it with the seeds you'll get about a hundred percent success all right, I've done some with seeds, and I'm about 50%, but the plants that I'm taking are maybe no more than two to three inches tall, and I yep. take a plug out about uh, about two to three inches in diameter. So I, I'm not far off the road, so I'm going to keep on doing and uh, see how it works out. And, Bobby, you stay out of trouble the rest of the day. And if you get in trouble, well, holler real loud. If I do, you all come help you. <laughs> you know, as busy as it's been, there hadn't been much time for getting into trouble, AJ. But uh, on on those on those little ones you're transplanting, go to about six inches in diameter and be sure you water them in with some Super Thrive, and I think you'll have uh, a much higher degree of success. All right. Okay, thank you, Bob. You have a good day, and I thank you for the call. All right, next up is Eric. Good morning, Eric. How are things in Winedale? They're so foggy we can't even see Winedale. Uh, I tell you what, it was a little foggy for me driving in, but uh, I was I was thankful to be intact because man, they had some sort of major 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 incident out on I ten West. So uh, I'm afraid that fog probably. Uh, played an unfortunate role in some folks' lives this morning. So you and me ought to just stay where we are for right now. I agree. Hey, to follow up on AJ's question, do you uh, do you have to scarify the pride of Barbados pride of Barbados seeds? They come up a lot faster if you do. I wouldn't say it's mandatory, but if you just plant the seeds, you'll get about oh, 40, 50 percent of them germinating quickly. The rest of them will be a lot slower. If you do scarify them, um, you'll get almost 100 percent of them come up pretty quickly. So the pros scarify them, and if you have a way to scarify them, that's always best. And so how would you recommend in, in the home garden scarifying them? I just put them between two pieces of uh, fairly fine grit sandpaper and just rough them up a little bit. Okay. Or better still, you can put them on your workbench and, you know, make a little sanding block. Just wrap a little piece of sandpaper around a little chunk of two-by-four or something like that. And you don't have to, you know, scratch a hole in them. You just have to abrade that waxy coating enough that it will absorb some moisture. So, you know, the the guys that are doing them by the thousands instead of uh, ten at a time, they will throw them into a gym tumbler, a rock tumbler, throw in a little bit of, carbo- of uh, carborundum or something like that and uh, just tumble them for a few minutes. And uh, if you happen to have a gym tumbler, you know, that's that's certainly the easy way to go. But if you're looking at starting 50 seeds or less, I'd say it's uh, five minutes work or less to get them scratched. Okay, okay. Well, the, now the main point of my uh, calling today was we've had a, a really great um, bunch of blue bonnets this year. I guess the rain's right and Amongst those blue bonnets, we found four white bonnet plants. 
Very good. Now, some of this, I know I need to wait until, until they get into seed and until they dry, but what should I do to keep them best? Uh, put them in the refrigerator, put them just in a cool spot, and then when should I plant them? Well, here's the first thing you do um, is take yourself a little piece of uh, surveying ribbon or something like that, that plastic tape, and go out and put a piece of tape around the white ones. Cause it'll be real hard to remember exactly which ones were white because, uh, you know, it's going to be six, eight weeks before that seed is ripe. And um, yeah. so I'd go out and I'd mark your plants immediately. Um, when it gets to the point that the pods start to discolor, I mean, don't wait till they pop open or they'll throw that seed everywhere. But when that pod first starts to dry, go ahead and harvest them. Take the seed out of the pod. Put it in an envelope, uh, any kind of envelope. Put that envelope in a uh, mason jar or glass jar of some sort and put it in the refrigerator, not in the freezer. Because uh, our modern refrigerators, of course, uh, they're so dehumidified that they will dry the seed out and greatly reduce the viability. That's why we seal them up in a mason jar. But uh, let them get fully dry, then put them in an envelope, then put them in that mason jar and remember that they are there <laughs> late summer when it's time to plant them. Now, don't expect that all of the seed this season from your white blue bonnets are going to come back white and if you need a complete uh lesson on that go back and read the work of gregor mendel and uh about dominance and recessivism or whatever and um but if you'll do this for about oh probably four generations if you will this next year save the ones that come white from your white seed this year do that for about three years in the row and what you're doing is getting those white genes uh in a much more of what we call a homozygous state and ultimately you'll get to the point that 100 percent of the seed from your white blue bonnets come back white but it's not going to happen the first year okay and and then so when is the proper time to plant the, the those blue bonnet seeds? To late is it in October or is it? Yeah, October is probably the best time. Obviously, Mother Nature plants them in May or early June. But the problem there is if you plant them early and they sprout, and then we get very dry, then uh, they just die. That's why they make such a hard coating on them is so that uh, not all of them will sprout at once. But uh, when you plant them in October, there's a much greater chance that we'll be into cooler, wetter weather, and you'll have a, a much better chance for a spring crop. So I usually figure first couple of weeks of October is about the best time on blue bonnets and most other wildflower seeds. Can you plant them in a, a good potting mix and then transplant them, or are they one of those that doesn't transplant well either? They are a legume, which means they don't transplant real well. But what I would do is, uh, you know, I when I do tomatoes, you know, I don't put individual seeds in individual pots. I do a tray the way my grandfather taught me because would would you know put two hundred seeds in a tray and then would tease out the little seedlings and plant them individually. On a blue bonnet, you want to transplant them as few times as possible. So I would get myself some small pots. I would go be sure you. 
your your soil drains well, and I would put about two seeds per pot, and that way the only transplant is when you put them in the ground, and they'll do fine that way. But if you start a massive seed trade, and they call it pricking out, and you try to take them out and transplant them individually, at that stage you'll probably lose a lot of them. But if you'll just take your little three or four inch square pots and put about two seeds per pot, um, they you should do very, very well with them. Super. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Back to the phone lines. It's going to be Robert and Rosa and Michael and Kay and Robert's next. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Bob. How are you doing? I, it's just uh, it's just a spring morning out there. It's not especially cold. It's quite damp, and uh, it just feels good. I, I just love that kind of air. Well, it's about the same here except a little muggy. Yeah, it's going to get real muggy for us over with today, but right now it's not too bad. Yeah. I got a question about uh, manure and compost tea in anaerobic and what the difference is between anaerobic and aerobic and how they work either way, what the other good is. Sure. Well, it uh, that's a great question, by the way, but anaerobic means without oxygen. Aerobic means with oxygen, and what happens is that most of, in fact, I think all of the good bacteria, and fungi too for that matter, are aerobic organisms, and if all the oxygen in the tea gets used up, then the good guys that are the aerobic ones die, and the bad guys, now not all anaerobic microbes are bad, but among the things that are anaerobic microbes are things like the bad E. coli and botulism and some other real nasty things like that. So we want to try hard to never let our compost tea go anaerobic because it literally... Uh, it, it, within minutes, the great change occurs because there are literally millions of microbes in that solution. And, uh, the two ways that we keep it from going anaerobic is, Number one, we make sure there's lots of oxygen going into it. That's why when we're making it, we've got those bubblers down in the bottom. If we have to transport it any distance uh, from the bubbler to where we're going to use it, somebody sits there and shakes it. Or if you're taking it a long way, you get one of these things that uh, my grandfather was never that high tech. We just uh, we just got our minnows close to where we went fishing. But nowadays, I know they make a bubbler you can plug into the cigarette lighter in the, in the car or truck and then drop that down in your bait bucket. I guess if you're at the coast, you're doing shrimp, and if you're inland, you're doing minnows or whatever. You can get one of those things and just drop it down in your jug of compost tea and keep it going over a longer distance. But that's the one way that we try to keep it from going anaerobic. The second thing that we do is we're careful not to overstimulate it and of course with compost tea probably molasses and any sugary products those are what are the real culprits when it comes to creating too much reproduction getting too many microbes too fast now you're not going to have to worry about that much with uh, the other things you may add like uh, fish or liquid seaweed or you know brand meals of some sort but you want to be real careful that you don't overstimulate your tea to where your air bubblers can't keep up with the needs of the microbes if that makes sense so uh, that's just what it's all about you want to try to keep your tea always good and aerobic 
And uh, you do that uh, by not overstimulating and by giving it uh, plenty of, uh, you know, of bubbles going through it. Uh, guys that I know that do it seriously, they'll get a little air pump and maybe put uh, three or more air stones at a time down into it. Because, I mean, if you look, we have a, a commercial compost tea maker here at Shades of Green. And when that thing is running, it looks like a stormy ocean. It's just they're practically white caps on the water inside. This thing's just making making billions of air bubbles out of this expensive little, uh, they call it a diaphragm that's in the bottom of it. So keep the oxygen going, watch your uh, overstimulation, and you'll never have a problem with it going anaerobic on you. Okay. Now, uh, first, what size tank do you have on your, your compost tea maker? Our compost tea maker is 25-gallon. Okay. My brother has uh, a lot of chickens, and he's wanting to use chicken manure. Mm-hmm. And they gave him a recipe for you putting 20 pounds a gal- of chicken manure into a 35-gallon trash can. And then let, oh. like I say, it was anaerobically composted. Would you would it aerob- aerobically compost at the same rate, or would that not work? Well, big difference in composting and uh, compost tea making. Uh, you'll always know if your compost is anaerobic because it's going to stink like heck. So it it is the same in that uh, if your composting is anaerobic, you're going to get some nasty stuff in there. And I sure wouldn't. I'd never put anaerobic compost in the garden. If I was forced to handle it, I'd be wearing gloves. I'd be treating it like hazardous material, which is what it is in my view i want all my compost making along with all my compost tea aerobic so uh i'm not sealing it up in any vats or anything like that okay but would if he put bumpers in there and uh with that first chicken manure would a month be good enough and be able to use it on the garden or you know, it um, I, again, I would never be making compost inside of a container unless it was something like, I mean, you can make like a compost bin and make the sides out of a very small opening hardware cloth, like eighth inch or, you know, quarter inch hardware cloth. But I just, uh, you put it in a, you put it in any kind of container that gets sealed up, it's not going to make as quickly. And the, shall we say, the gaseous by products are not going to be as pleasant uh you can compost i'm sorry it's not sealed the top's open oh i know but you know we want air on on four on uh, all sides of it because it's not going to do you much good if the top inch of it gets uh you know gets air but the bottom 12 inches don't get air um, unless you were turning it daily out there, dumping it from one bucket into the other and mixing it up, uh, just having one surface exposed to the air on something like chicken manure is not nearly enough. You you want air on all sides plus the top. I guess you could take that uh, that can and drill about a hundred holes in the side of it. But to me, it'd be a whole lot easier just to make my own little bin with uh, some two by fours and some hardware cloth. Well, isn't the bubbler doing the same thing? Well, the bubbler is when you're in a liquid solution. Bubbler's not going to do any good, you know, in in just in a in a can. Uh, but uh, I mean, we use them. It's not. The uh, is not dry. It's soak. It's soaking in, in water. Yeah. 
uh, it's you're you're just going to be dealing with a nasty situation, and you're not going to be able to get the air dispersed well through it. Uh, I mean, you could put bubbler in the bottom of it, and you get some oxygen going through there, but it's going to be it's going to be making bigger bubbles, so to speak, and it's only going to be reaching you know probably a limited percentage of the manure in the container. So. Uh, um, you know, I, you're just not going to accomplish good decomposition inside of a bucket like that. Now, I guess you could make a tea. It'd be much better to make it with aged manure, but your teas are only good for maybe 48 hours at the most. So, uh, um, I, I'm gonna let that manure air dry and then I'm gonna compost it. Um, it's just in a liquid state. It's, it's gonna be like a septic tank and, uh, you don't want to get inside of a septic tank, I can promise you. No, I don't know that. Well, that's what you're gonna have. If you fill a bucket with, uh, liquid poultry manure, uh, it's gonna make a septic tank smell good. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I know what it does because Mother's News used to have uh, methane composters using anaerobic poop. But, right, uh, right. Yeah, so that's I'm a that's a whole. Yeah, but that that's your you're doing a whole different thing there. I mean, you do you do whatever you like. I, I'm simply telling you what I would do and what I learned. I my partner and I took a uh, course from Dr. Lane Ingham, who is uh, perhaps the world authority on compost and compost tea, and these are things that she taught us. Okay, I, I didn't know if the, putting the bubbler would would give it the air that it needs to compost right or. Yeah, no, no, sir. Not in not in pure manure. In in compost tea, uh, that's what we would do it. But in trying to make compost, uh, it needs to dry because just being in a liquid state, it's already semi, you know, aerobic, and uh, you want it to dry because it's not really going to start decomposing until it dries out. So. Uh, um, you know, I'll ask Stuart Frankie exactly because, you know, they use uh, hundreds of tons of a uh, poultry litter material. And I know that they, uh, their sources on it, they mix it with some sort of drying material. And I don't know whether they use ground cob or whether they use, uh, uh, you could use something like sawdust, although that would be kind of counterproductive. But the first thing you want to do with that, uh, that poultry litter, that poultry manure, is get it dry and then you can start composting it. You you do not want to. Uh, uh, it's just not going to break down into the things you want while it's still in a liquid form. It's got to dry out so that you can get, then get the microbes in there that are going to turn it into an outstanding fertilizer, which it is. And how long would it have to dry to be so it doesn't burn the plants? That's, uh, well, the drying and the aging are two different things. Uh, the drying is going to depend on uh, the relative humidity and the temperature you know, in a, in a dry day, if you can spread it out, you'll dry it out in uh, probably 48 hours. But I would give it approximately six weeks to compost uh, before the nitrogen level is going to get down to the point that it's not going to cause problems for your plants. Okay. And could you mix it with leaves and uh, pine straw? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, leaves, uh, chop them up if you can, pine straw, uh, stable bedding, you know, just about any of these things will uh, do a real good job of spreading it out, getting plenty of air to it, and absorbing the moisture that's there. 
that point, he could put it in, put that compost in water with the stones in it, and really yeah. Tea. Absolutely, absolutely. And you say that tea's only good for forty-eight hours. Uh, it's it, after you take the oxygen off of it, it's uh, good for about an hour. Uh, as long as the oxygen is going, it's about 48 hours. Now, after that, you know, it's not going to go bad on you, but it simply uses up the nutrients that are in there. And every hour that passes after that, you're going to have fewer live active microbes. You're not going to have bad stuff in there, but uh, they say the compost tea will be at its peak as far as being full of good microbes somewhere between about 12 and about uh, 48 hours. Okay, so 12 to 48 hours of brewing. Yeah. Okay. All right, I think that takes care of it then. Very good. It's my pleasure. You do the same, Robert. Good questions, and thank you for the call. All right, back to gardening. And with a quick reminder, um, you know, there are just a lot of people out there need a little help uh, with food, especially. Trayware is sort of spearheading the big food drive uh, with KTSA and many partners, and uh, they really could use your help. Uh, second thing the station looks for, uh, we're looking for right now, is what uh, we're calling the uh, COVID heroes, people who just really stand out for doing good things at this time. You get full details on both programs at ktsa.com and check it out because there really is a lot of need out there right now to the phone lines rosa is up next good morning rosa good morning i wanted to tell you how patient you are thank (laughs) you because you answer the same questions and i always think i'm going to remember and i never do well as my business partner tells me if everybody remembered i'd be out of a job in about three weeks (laughs) So it's uh, that's what keeps me going because it's very natural, you know. If I talk about a problem, but you're not having that problem, you're not under you're you're not likely to remember that all of a sudden that problem calls crops up in your garden. You need to call me, and that's what keeps me in business. So how can I help you today? Well, today it's on peroxide. I wanted okay. to know what what is it good for on what plants and how do I use it. Okay, hydrogen peroxide, of course, is a good cleaner, a good sterilant. Uh, it's as good as uh, alcohol or anything else for killing bacteria and fungi and things like that. And it also, when you put it on the soil, you know, the chemical formula of hydrogen peroxide is H2O2. You put it on soil, and it starts breaking down to H2O plus oxygen. So it does what we call flocculating. So uh, one use for it is uh, when you're digging a hole, if it's like real heavy, the heavy clay, you can just uh-huh. spray or pour some of it in around the edges of the hole, and it will loosen the soil up. Now, we don't do it too much because it does kill some of the beneficial things in the soil. What we use it for more is that we have found that it actually will control, perhaps in some cases, even cure uh, virus diseases in plants. And this is everything from the curly top in the tomato to the abnormal coloration in squash to this disease that they call curly top. Well, the curly top is in the, uh, is in the tomatoes and then rose rosette, which produces a very abnormal growth in rose bushes. So if you're fighting any of those problems, uh, you just spray it on the foliage, just pretty much spray it all over the plants. If you're using it for just a general cleaner and disinfectant, 
disinfectant, of course, uh, you can you can use it pretty much straight out of the bottle, which is usually 3% hydrogen peroxide. Now, you can buy it. I don't recommend it unless you have a specific need, but you can buy it in a very strong concentration, close to 30%, but at that point you have to handle it with gloves and eye protection and things like that, and they use that for killing algae, some of these real serious algae problems in swimming pools, some of the ones that are very hard to kill. Uh, That's another thing you could do with your ordinary safe grocery store hydrogen peroxide. If you put it in a bird bath or a fish pond, it will do a lot to control the algae that's in the water and it will not hurt the birds or the fish so lots of uses for hydrogen peroxide it's also you know a great surface disinfectant seems like uh all these crazy hoarders in the world have bought up all the alcohol the rubbing alcohol in the grocery stores but as far as sanitizing a surface hydrogen peroxide is probably just as good as alcohol so how do i use it then like uh, if i want to spray say the tomato plant how would i then, use it you would dilute it about two parts water to one part hydrogen peroxide and just spray it on the plants with a little hand sprayer or a pump-up sprayer. You could not use the hose sprayer. That would dilute it too much. But just a little spray bottle or a little pump-up garden sprayer, but out two parts water to one part hydrogen peroxide. Okay. Would that be good, like, on the roses? You know, sometimes the buds don't open because there's some kind of little bug on it well that's a bug and uh the peroxide doesn't do much against bugs and that that bug is called a thrips insect you would get rid of them by spraying liquid garlic but uh it will help with powdery mildew and some things like that but normally when the uh buds are not opening you described it exactly right there's a little insect inside but that insect is not really affected by the hydrogen peroxide you need to, to use liquid garlic to control the thrips so would you spray that little bud like right now when it's before it gets on it while it's still all closed up or after it opens up? Um, at any point that you like to. If you have a problem, mildew is what you're going to basically be controlling with it. And if it stays very, very humid like this, it's probably good uh-huh. to spray in advance. But uh, the garlic itself is also a good fungicide. It has two uses. Uh, it drives away a number of bad insects like thrips and aphids and things. And it controls, uh, it, it stimulates so many good fungi that they crowd out the bad fungus. So on my roses, unless I have the disease, which is called rose rosette, I'm more likely to be spraying garlic than I am spraying hydrogen peroxide. Oh, wonderful. Well, I've got my tablet this time, and I'm writing it down. (laughs) Now, if we could just remember where we put things. Oh, you know me so well already. I I know me, Rosa, and I, I I'm not going to say it has anything to do with age, but just uh, you know, I I like to think that my mind is is like a computer, and I wish I could get a couple of new chips to put in it because it's getting a little overloaded with all the information. But you get out. You have a wonderful Sunday, and it's always good to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, Michael's up next. Good morning, Michael. Hey, good morning, Bob. Hey, morning, um, sir. I've got some quick. Hey, good. Hey, I got some questions for you, right quick. Um, okay. Yesterday, I bought uh, two galvanized bushel size uh, steel buckets or pots, and okay. I wanted to grow some tomatoes in my back porch. Okay. okay. And so I've done it before, and I've had the cherry ones that I've been real successful. But 
I wanted to grow another kind of vegetable, maybe a squash or a cucumber mm-hmm. or something like that. Can I do that? You can, but I hate to tell you, a galvanized bucket was not the best choice because the zinc that is used in the galvanizing can actually burn plant roots. And what I usually tell people, now you get that old one that's, you know, half rusted out, uh, you're not going to have a problem. But in a freshly galvanized container, if you would take and smear the inside of it, with something like Vaseline, and then take an old cleaner's bag, just press it up against the sides and trim the top back to where you can't see it. You don't really want the roots of your vegetables coming in contact with that fresh galvanized surface, or it will burn the roots. Okay. So now you can grow any kind. You can grow tomatoes, you can grow peppers, you can grow eggplants, you can grow squash. Um, you'd have to have a lot of containers if you were going to grow okra or something like that. But no, many, many a vegetable garden garden is grown where people don't have you know open space that uh where they're grown on a balcony or a patio or whatever so you can grow just about anything that doesn't get just huge okra and corn are out but uh beyond that peppers eggplants tomatoes uh beans squash cucumbers uh any of those things any of the in winter months leafy vegetables lettuce and chard and mustard and all that sort of thing uh you can grow it just as well in a pot as you can in the ground Okay, what about, um, don't they make like some small cucumbers? I mean, is there a certain species or variety? There are varieties. Uh, most cucumbers are vining and really would like to have a trellis or something to grow up on. But uh, one I'm growing this year is called Space Master, and it is, uh, it is, they say, made specifically for container gardening, and it doesn't put out the long vines. So, yes, sir, there are some, and I'm sure there are others. Space Master just happens to be one that I'm trying this year for the first time. Okay, then a couple other things right quick. Um, should I drill a hole in the bottom of the pots and put some rocks in the bottom? You should drill about 10 holes in the bottom of the pots. And you can you don't put a big layer of rocks, but obviously you don't want your soil washing out. Some people will just cut some little pieces of screen, mesh screen, on put over it. Or, you know, uh, in the business, we always have plenty of broken clay pots. And uh, doing this sort of thing with my grandfather, we always just put one little shard of a broken pot over each hole. But if you wanted to put, you know, a half-inch layer of rock in the bottom, that would be fine. But I talk to people all the time that want to fill that container two-thirds full of rock just to save on the cost of soil. And I always tell them, you know, the more soil, the more roots. And uh, that may be what it what did they say, uh, pound penny-wise and pound foolish or whatever. Uh, you need as much right, uh, right. soil as possible, so a very thin layer of rock on the bottom is fine, but there are other ways to keep the soil from draining out as well. Okay. Uh, and then one last question, what about strawberries? Um, time to plant strawberries is usually October, November. It uh, okay. Strawberries are one of those things that you don't, get a lot of production per plant so that's probably not going to be one of the things i'm going to recommend for the buckets but if you really want to do it they make and they still make uh something they call a strawberry jar uh the one my grandparents had was wooden most of the ones these days are made out of terracotta but it's kind of like an urn that has little pockets all the way around the side some of them have six some of them have up to 12 or 14 little pockets so you're not taking up a lot of space and you put 
one strawberry plant in each of these little side pockets on your strawberry pot, and that way you can get a fair number of strawberries in a pretty small area. Okay, perfect. Okay, hey, thank you so much, Bob. All right, it's going to be Kay and Gary and Mark and John. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Good morning. Um, This is another Pride of Barbados question. Okay. Uh, My Pride of Barbados did not freeze back this year, Mm -hmm. and it's up to the shop roof. Can I still (laughs) cut it back, or is it too late? No, you can. uh, it's, It's putting on a bunch of new growth now. Um, yes, but it's, it's, you know, it's been that way all, all year. Yeah. Well, it just, they, they always put on a burst of spring growth. If you can get your cutting done before that starts, all the better. But no, I, I, you can certainly cut it back. I don't think I would cut it all the way to the ground and I wouldn't cut all the stems back to the same height, but I'd go through and cut some of them off at one foot, some of them off at two foot, some of them off at three feet, but do it real soon before it puts on any more new growth. Cause you want to, you don't want to cut off, you don't want to put all this energy into coming out and then have all that cut off. So, uh, go ahead and cut it back but i mean this afternoon would be a good time to do it oh sounds good um you were talking about the seeds earlier if you Uh get a seed do you put them just in a pot of dirt or do you have to put them on a propagating mat or anything and um which kind of seeds you were talking about pride barbados still right yeah, I I start them in little three-inch pots, and I will usually put two seeds to a pot just in case one of them is not viable. But uh, I'll start them in little, just in potting soil in a three-inch pot, and it depends on the time of year. In the warm months, I mean, if you don't get around to doing it until May or June, propagating mats not really necessary. But if you're trying to get them started early, uh, January, February, March, a propagating mat will make all the difference in how quickly they come up and how fast they grow. So it sounds like summer's a good time to plant them. Well, the sooner you plant them, the bigger they get, and the bigger they get, the more flowers they have. So ideally, you should uh, plant them out in the garden the day after the last freeze if you want to get maximum size and maximum flowers. Having said that, since you're going to plant them from a container, you can do it, you know, any time throughout the spring or summer months. But uh, the sooner you get them in the ground, the bigger they grow, the bigger they grow, the more flowers you get. Okay. All right. That's all I needed to know. Thanks so much. Very good questions. Thank you for calling this morning. All right. Let's talk to Gary. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Bob. Uh, morning, sir. I have, a question. I have a question about my St. Augustine grass. Uh, yes, sir. It's pretty well real nice and green mostly, but within the last week or week and a half, some of the tips of the leaves are turning yellow. Uh, it's not all over the grass. It's not the grass is generally not turning yellow, but I look at it and there's leaves that are just sort of yellowish in, yeah. in around the grass. When, when's the last time you fertilized? When, when's the last time you fertilized? Oh, I guess. I think I put some down in, must have been late February or something, I guess. I, I just don't remember. It, it was a while back. And what kind of fertilizer did you put down? What brand? It wasn't organic. It was, uh, I'm not sure what, it was just a cheap fertilizer. 
Well, I think you, I think you just hit the nail on the head. That is, uh, that's just a deficiency of either iron or zinc or nitrogen. And, uh, a lot of your, you know, crummy fertilizers, as you describe, have nothing but nitrogen in them. So I would look for a more balanced product. I would prefer organic, of course, but, uh, that yellowing is just, uh, is just a nutrient deficiency. It's not a fungus. Um, it's, you know, not a disease. It's probably not a lack of water, but uh, I would go ahead and, uh, you know, get Nature's Creation or Meister Grow or Medina. There are lots of good brands of fertilizer out there that have all the micronutrients in there, and that should uh, that should really work at greening that grass up. Okay, so it's not a fungus, you don't think, huh? I know, sir. If it were a fungus, it would be overall yellow, and when you picked up on a leaf blade, it would pull away from the runner underneath, and it'd be just kind of brown and watery at the bottom. But see the new growth. The newest growth on the grass is telling you how it's doing nutrient-wise, and when the newest growth is starting to show a deficiency, then we know it's a, you know, it's a it's a food issue rather than a disease issue. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm out here now, and some of the yellow leaves do pull off, but they just sort of snap off, but not all of them. Yeah. And then, uh, but but when they come up, if you look down at the bottom, does it look kind of brown and watery, or does it just look like the leaf just broke off? It's like the leaf broke off. Yeah, I don't think that's uh, fungus. I mean, if you were uncertain, you could put out a little whole ground cornmeal. But what you're describing to me sounds a whole lot more like uh, like the grass is just hungry. Okay, okay. And you say that uh, organic one. What's the? I know it costs a lot more than a regular, but I guess you get more. No sir, no sir. Buck, it, huh? It, it doesn't cost a lot more. In fact, it's uh, um, it's cheaper, as cheaper, cheaper than most of the others. And especially, uh, see, here's one thing about organic fertilizers. If they are 4% nitrogen, your plants get all 4%. So 100% of what's in that bag is good for the plants. When you get a synthetic fertilizer, the plants only get about 10% of the nitrogen. So if you got a synthetic fertilizer that was 20% nitrogen, your plants are only going to get 2% of it. If you got an organic fertilizer that's 4% nitrogen, your plants are going to get all 4%. So even though the numbers are lower, your plants are getting twice as much nutrients. So in truth, organic fertilizers from your plant's perspective are, you know, cheaper than the other. And uh, nowadays, even the ag fertilizers that they put out by the ton on the pastures, uh, the organic stuff is cheaper. So it's a whole lot better. doesn't cost any more, and your plants will really appreciate it. And the organics do not have to be watered in. So you just put them out and let Mother Nature take care of it. All right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. We're going to talk to Mark and John and Carol and Ellen, and Mark's up first. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Bob. Hey, good morning, sir. How uh, chilly did it get in Fredericksburg this week? Um, 31 in the garden. Oh, wow. <laughs> Hopefully so, you had everything protected. Yeah, that's that's why I'm calling. i am kind of got an issue now. I'm not sure. I want to get your opinion. <clears throat> the uh, pole beans were just sprouting. Uh-huh. <clears throat> And I had them covered with a light something. Actually, one set of them hadn't even come out of the ground. Uh-huh. I had them covered lightly, but I'm sure they got into the mid-30s. Well, now a lot of them are kind of chlorotic-looking, and some of them have, like, more pronounced yellow around on the edges of the leaves. And they're, like, maybe mm-hmm. they're they're growing. They're two to three inches tall. I, I'm trying to decide if that's going to be a permanent issue, if I should replant or 
I don't think it's going to be a permanent issue, and I think that what you're looking at is not really directly related to mid-30s as far as the plants are concerned, but your soil is very cold, and the colder the soil is, the slower a warm season plant is to take up the nutrients. So I don't feel that the plants are damaged. But until that soil warms up, which is okay. going to be about noon today, I, I think when it warms yeah. up, if, if it were freeze damage, you would see you would see black edges, you would see yeah, like sunken okay. areas on the leaves. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah but okay. it's when the soil is as cold as it is, a warm weather plant simply can't take up the nutrients. Its root system is very different than that of say spinach or something oh. like that. So, uh, I I would okay. give it a week or ten days, and uh, if the weather continues on its current course and we all know about texas weather but i think things are going to straighten up real well for you yeah even the uh ones that hadn't sprouted yet had the same issues so that makes sense yeah yeah that's why they pay you the big bucks bob okay (laughs) (laughs) what what, where where is that where am i going to go to get big bucks Uh, (laughs) they're coming they're coming i i i it's it's why i do for the pleasure of what i do and and you know what what is it the guys say they i pretend to work and they pretend to pay me or something like that but no i you're you're not hearing any complaints from me we're just joking about a a situation but uh nobody's going to retire on what they make in radio unless you're rush limbaugh or somebody like that sure sure Another quick observation: <clears throat> Most years we get very few plums or, or pears, and it's and it's because we just about always have a freeze once they start blooming. Right. This year the trees were all loaded with blooms; it's more than we ever had, and it mm-hmm. didn't freeze for weeks. And there's there's no plums and practically no pears. And it's like, why? why? <laughs> um, I don't know about you, but I, back in that period of time, I had very little bee activity. Uh, oh. My bees, I'm seeing probably 5% okay. of the bees that I normally see. And for a couple of folks that put out more hummingbird feeders than the rest of the yeah. county, I'll bet yeah. you if you check your hummingbird feeders, you've got almost no bees around them. And I think we're seeing... A lot of issues where we're looking at lack of pollination. My I, my squash aren't quite up to blooming size yet, so I'm going to be interested to see how I do on bees. If not, I'm going to be doing a bunch of hand pollinating. But I I really suspect that your uh, that your lack of fruit set is due to lack of uh, pollinator activity. And part of you know one thing that we can all do is stop relying on honeybees because their populations are unstable and I have to say threatened. But if we can do things to encourage the native mason bees and things like that and that's as simple as taking you know a four or five inch diameter cedar log cutting it to an 18 inch length and Uh drilling a bunch of holes a couple inches deep into it and you know maybe three eighths to five eighths of an inch in diameter put a little ring bolt in the top of it and hang them out in shady areas your mason bees are actually at least what the experts tell us they're 20 times better than honeybees at pollinating things and uh, we all ought to be working more to build up our mason bee populations and hoping that the honeybees make a recovery but if we i'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket when it comes to having a bee population so so how deep would you drill those holes i'd answer two Okay. You know, okay. what they will do, they'll, they'll be very thankful that they don't have to chew their way into that log. And typically, they will lay several eggs, and they build kind of a little partition between them, and then they pretty much hatch at all the same time and come out. But, yeah, I'd, I'd go maybe an inch and a half deep, uh, 
in there, and, and that's about how deep most of the holes. Every now and then I'll take a little piece of wire and probe down, you know, in the dormant season for the okay. bees because uh, we've got okay. six, we do a lot of uh, building with six-by-six six cedar posts around here, and uh, we have quite a mason bee colony back in our seminar room and a couple other places, and it's just fun to get up and take a close wow. look at what they're doing. But I would say, in all honesty, inch, inch and a half is probably going to be good. Now, if you want to, you can actually buy uh, mason bee nesting, I'd have to call them devices, and what they look like is about 30 or 40 thick, uh, fairly large soda straws that are maybe six inches long that are just all glued together in a big clump. And oh. those are basically open, you know, five, six inches deep. Uh, they usually use kind of a waxed straw rather than plastic. Uh, maybe they can hold on to it better and you don't want it to break down quickly. But uh, if you're in a, you know, a, a nature store of some sort, look around. They probably have some little nesting bee uh devices shall we call them nesting bee houses but the people like us that have lots of cedar on our property we can we can find an old dead cedar tree and make our own without spending more than a little bit of energy is it better to use cedar than oak you think or does it matter absolutely no they love the cedar in fact common name is cedar bees and it's better to use uh dead cedar than live cedar okay 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 um the 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 peaches they're great our harvester tree was just loaded. Uh-huh. I, I, stand, uh, I took off 4,000 little peaches off of that tree. Oh, wow. That's and, amazing. And the, top of it, the top 25% didn't even have any on it at all. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, the weather was perfect for harvester. It, uh, the chilling yeah. hours were right this year, but don't count yeah. on it next year. Right, right. Okay, great. Thanks, Bob. You take care. You're welcome, Mark. You do the same. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. All right, let's keep going here and talk to John next. Good morning, John. Hey, I want to, I'm, I want to yeah. find, find out a little bit about uh, onions. I've got a bunch of them planted, and they're, they're coming up. Uh, well, they've been coming up for a while, but they, uh, they're they starting to get their little seed pods on top. Right. Do, do you have to do anything with them or just, just let them go until they start to wilt and then onions will be ready well unfortunately the ones that start to bloom are not going to grow very much more they've done they is in their little chemical mind they are saying hey it's time to make seeds so i'm going to stop growing so unfortunately um they don't get a lot bigger once they start to bloom and they don't keep nearly as well so i was going through my onion patch yesterday and uh you know pulling the ones that were starting to bloom and go ahead and using those because uh, onions are are interesting plants onions like many plants measure the day length and when the days start getting longer uh, then some varieties start going to seed and it's why I think it's always good to plant multiple varieties because some varieties it seems like they all always just bloom really early and you never get a decent onion out of them um, and looking in my garden most of my 1015s are not going to seed but some of my purples I think those are the worst have decided they're going to go ahead and go to seed so I always like planting several onion varieties but once they start making that bloom up on top you might as well harvest them and use them as green onions even if they don't have big bulbs because they've pretty much done everything they're going to do all righty that's what I needed to find out the biggest onion 
The biggest onion grower in the country is uh, a company called Dixondale, D-I-X-O-N, Dixondale Farms. And they've got a good website, and they will give you lists of varieties and which are what they call short day and long day. And uh, those folks know more about onions than all the rest of us put together. And they can they can help you develop a planting plan so that you'll have the fewest number of them go to seed in your area. And uh, they're just good people to, to know about, and their website's uh, just full of information. Okay. Last year I planted, and, and uh, I had some go to seed, but most of mine, they were 10-15s, and they, they grew yeah. to three, four-inch bulbs. They were really yeah. good onions, and I, I harvested them. I, I didn't know a lot of these are starting to seed out already, and uh, not all of them, but some of them I just didn't know. So what I do is just pull the ones that are seeding, eat them. Yes, sir, that's that's what you do. Eat them and enjoy them, and every year's different. And uh, like I say, I always plant more than one variety because in a given year, you know, one variety always seems to outdo the other, and if you put all your put all your energy into one thing and the whole crop goes to seed then you don't have many onions late into the summer and i happen to like onions me too all right hey it's gonna be a pretty one this afternoon all right back to gardening and back to the phone lines it looks like it's the uh, ladies turn now carla and ellen and uh, carol and ellen and sue and darla good morning carol hi bob I have Hi there. Three, I have three BHN 968 cherry tomato plants. Okay. Uh, they're, they're almost three feet tall. They have set fruit. But on the lower part of two of the plants, there are these small, round spots, kind of a beige color. Okay. On, on the stem or, stem or on the leaf? Leaves. And okay. a couple of the leaves... You know, look like they have holes in them, like something chewed on them. Okay. Well, the spot is probably, I mean, there are probably a thousand different little uh, leaf-spotting fungi that can happen. I like spraying them with a little bit of garlic uh, because that will prevent a lot of that. On a curative basis, you can... uh, Oh, gosh, you can soak some cornmeal and make your corn water tea, or you can actually spray with garlic, sometimes a little bit of hydrogen peroxide, but don't do that as much on the tomatoes. As far as chewing, the principal culprits chewing on tomatoes are usually caterpillars, frequently that big old scary-looking thing called a tomato hornworm, and uh, occasionally on lower leaves we will see some pill bugs just crawling up the plants and uh, just chewing little minor spots on the leaves but if they're major chunks of leaf disappearing then you probably need to spray with bt bacillus thuringiensis it Mm -hmm. uh is a you know it's the caterpillar killer put a little molasses with it and uh it's very very effective and totally safe for people and pets okay i would say just very few of the leaves have holes but yeah i wouldn't worry about it little those little round Beige spots looks kind of look like a pinhead size. Right. They're so thin. Uh Uh-huh. 
Well, here's here's what happens if a fung and fungi reproduce by spores rather than by seeds. If a fungus spore lands on a dry leaf, nothing happens. If a fungus spore lands in a drop of water on a leaf, then many times it will, in effect, germinate, penetrate the leaf, and start to grow. We have had so much cloudy, drizzly, damp weather that this is just the ideal situation for different fungi to begin growing. I doubt it's going to be a major problem, but I would probably head it off before it becomes one. Uh, one reason that I like spraying periodic with, with garlic is that even though you can't see it, the great majority of beneficial fungi are microscopic, but garlic, and you can get liquid garlic under the name of mosquito barrier or garlic barrier or a bunch of different uh, products, uh, but garlic stimulates so many beneficial fungi that they, in effect, crowd out the bad guys before they can even get started. So. Um, and I, you know, do as I say, not as I do, because I'm behind on spraying my garlic on my tomatoes, and I'm probably going to have some of those little spots too. But uh, garlic is a great fungus preventer. Once the spots are started, again, either the corn water tea, soaking, you know, like a, a half a cup of cornmeal in a gallon of water for 12 to 24 hours, and spraying with that water, that will normally stop the fungus in its tracks and keep it from spreading. Okay, the garlic spray sounds good. So the brand is, is it a mosquito barrier, you said? Well, it's, uh, there, there are several different companies. The, the one that we have found most readily available, and I think it's from a company called Garlic Research Labs, and they put it out under the name of either garlic barrier or mosquito barrier, and it's basically the same thing. There's a little bit difference in concentration. I would simply, uh, uh, I would, I use them both interchangeably. Just depends on what we've got an extra bottle of around. Okay, and you sell that at your store? We do. Okay. Okay, my next uh, comment is, not long ago, you and Howard Garrett were talking. I think I heard that he mentioned that he uses hydrogen peroxide for the age spots on the hands. Did I hear that correctly? You heard that correctly, and I haven't tried it yet, but I <laughs> it would it would be a good idea, but uh, uh, I, I won't you know I won't attest to the efficacy, and I don't have a lot of age spots, but you know we're getting that age where we get some. But according <laughs> the gospel according to Howard says that hydrogen peroxide is good in reducing and eliminating age spots. So uh, uh, if you know somebody, I'm sure you don't have that issue, but if you know somebody no, that has not. that <laughs> issue, no, no. But you might, you, <laughs> that's what I always say when I'm teaching a seminar. I tell people, if you don't want to admit to something going on in your garden, just stick up your hand and say, my neighbor couldn't come today, but they wanted me to ask you such and such. So, uh, yeah, and get a friend to try it and report back to me on how it works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you think he was using just straight hydrogen peroxide and not diluting it? I think he was probably using straight grocery store hydrogen peroxide. Now, yes, as, yes. I was, as I was telling a caller earlier, you can buy very concentrated hydrogen peroxide that would, you know, do bad things to you. And it may dry your skin a little bit if you use the 3%. I suspect that the 3% is more effective than the 1%, but until I try it, uh, all I know is that it's going to be going to be harmless to you other than maybe drying things a little bit. And I'm sure you probably use a good lotion periodically and that's going to take care of that issue 
Thank you so much, Bob. Love your show. Bye-bye. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> Goodbye, Ellen. All right, let's see here. Uh, what time are we looking at? Now, we can take one more call before we need to do another uh, another commercial. Uh, that was Carol. So uh, next up is going to be Ellen. Good morning, Ellen. Good morning. Good morning. It, it's kind of foggy here in Seguin. It's kind of foggy all across South Texas, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, um, I've got a question about house plants. Um, I have two house plants in south-facing windows. Okay. But I have those low-E windows, and mm-hmm. I've had a couple die on me. Um, does that low-E block the beneficial light coming through to the house plant? Generally, no, because... Uh, the low E is more, you know, it's it's a double pane window with gas in between. Now, some of the window tinting materials, they may interfere a bit, but even those are mainly blocking the yellow and red, the heat-producing rays of the sun, and they're not blocking the blue rays, which is what your plants use. Now, what what kind of plants are you growing in front of these windows, and which direction do the windows face? Uh, they say south, and one is a lady palm, and the other one is a, a prayer plant. Okay. Um, the, you know, light would not be the issue in either one of those. The lady palm, or also known as raphis palm, um, I see that it is more often than not, I see water issues with lady palms, and usually it's not always that they're not watered often enough, but they're not watered thoroughly enough, and then allowed to the dropper dry to the proper point. And what you end up with is, first of all, brown tips on the leaves, and then you get the whole stems shriveling. So with your raphis palm, you need to be certain that when you're watering, you're really, really watering thoroughly, Many raphis palms, in fact, probably most of them that are sold now are potted in lava coming out of Hawaii, which dries very quickly, so uh, you don't want to let them get bone dry. When that when that upper inch starts feeling dry, it's time to water very, very thoroughly again, and raphis palms should be one of the easiest things you can grow. Now, your prayer plant... Um, it doesn't like the low humidity of being inside. If somebody told me I just really want to have a prayer plant, you know, in my window, I would tell them buy two prayer plants, leave one of them on the patio, one of them in the window, and once a week switch them back and forth. Because prayer plants are, in all honesty, much happier on a patio or a balcony or greenhouse than they are inside with the very low humidity that we have in our homes with uh, modern heat and air conditioning. So, um, if you if you just want to have one prayer plant, I would think about putting it in sort of an oversized plant saucer. I would fill that saucer with gravel. I don't want the plant actually sitting down in the water, but I want water around that gravel so that the water is constantly evaporating. You've got a little bit more humidity coming up around the prayer plant, and I think it'll do much better. Now, if you happen to have a kitchen window or a bathroom window that's really bright, because prayer plants like fairly bright light, but those rooms of your home have naturally higher humidity and are actually a place you'll have much better luck growing the prayer plants. Now, prayer plants are a huge family of plants, calatheas and marantas and a whole bunch of different plants. And quite honestly, some of them are good house plants, and most of them really want to be on the porch or patio. But anything you can do to get the humidity up is going to help that plant do better. 
Okay. The gravel idea, is a, that's a great idea. I'm going to try that. Now, my second question is my nightmare, wild blackberry in a flower bed. <laughs> okay. It's ever, it's ever, I've tried to kill it several times, hand-pulling it, uh, vinegar and orange oil. It ju- it's like I just feed it. And it's just what I did was I scalped it with the lawnmower, the, yep. all of everything. Yep. Um, can I just spray those new sprouts with vinegar and orange oil? You can do that. It will take several sprayings to control it. What else is in the What else is in the flower bed? Um, uh, very mature variegated ginger, which is beautiful. But I oh, mowed yeah. it all down to the ground. And okay. uh, I English ivy. Okay. Um, Yes, you know, probably very selective spraying since you have other things growing in there. I mean, where it becomes a problem to me, I go after it with a grubbing hoe, but you can't do that where you've got other things around. The other thing is that there are not any other plants close by. You can actually put cardboard on top of it about three layers deep and put some mulch or something on top of that, and that will usually smother it out without causing the problems that weed block and other things do, but uh, it's actually a dewberry rather than a blackberry and little berries are delicious but gosh they are thorny and when we have as wet a year as we've had this year they're just going crazy out there walking around my ranch i'll see a just a little sea of white somewhere and i'll walk over and look and sure enough uh you know there's a big dewberry patch and then i know the possums and raccoons are going to get at the berries before i get any of them but uh um, they're, they're a nuisance in the flower bed. If you have a place they can grow in an area and be protected from varmints, my grandfather used to make deep dish, dish dewberry cobbler with little fresh homemade vanilla ice cream. And I drool just thinking about that these days. So they, they in, in nature, they, they are a very good thing, but in the flower bed, they're a nuisance you want to get rid of. Yes. They're like little razor blades. They're just like, yeah. they're so thorny. Okay, yeah. that answers that. Um, also, I've got some mature Yuma crepe myrtles. I have three of them, and they're already about 15 feet tall. They've been in the ground okay. for a few years, and I've never fed them. How, how, do, how do you feed something that big? You just put, uh, you know, plants get, in nature, plants get virtually all of their nutrient through the root system. So you just simply, whatever good organic fertilizer you're using on your grass and ground covers and variegated ginger and all the other things (laughs) that you were saying were in that flower bed, you know, just uh, on the surface of the ground, out pretty much throughout uh, going out from the trunk of the crepe myrtle, maybe five feet out in each direction. That's going to be your biggest concentration of roots. I would figure that for every inch diameter of the crepe myrtle trunk, you need to use about a pound of fertilizer. So my guess is you're going to put three to five pounds of fertilizer around each of these, just sprinkled on the surface of the ground. If you're using organics, and I imagine you are, you don't even have to water it in. Just put it out there, and it'll get watered with the next watering cycle. Your foliage will be better, and your flowering will be uh, increased. Terrific. All right, Bob, thank you so much. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It's going to be Sue and Darla and Wes and Brian, and it is Sue's turn. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. Good morning. The process of trying to redo a front bed that is on the other side of our, our porch, and the porch railing is about four feet, no, three feet tall. And okay. it faces direct west. So as soon as that sun goes over the house, it gets sun the rest of the day. The stuff Very that good. I have 
Yeah. Well, yeah, as long as they like that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so what I have on each end of the bed, one bed's 23 feet long, the other one is 17, with a walkway okay. in the middle, that center. Okay. And on either end, I have the fire bush, and they, uh-huh. of course, really well. And then I have next to the walkway on either side the variegated abelia. Mm-hmm. And I have I have one rose bush in the middle of one side, and it does well depending on water. And, of course. Um, yeah. And then um, what I want to get rid of is the artemisia. It's just really uh-huh. ratty. And go, going yeah. up the walkway on either side, I have the ruby crystal grass and interspersed with the low um, ruelia. The little purple. Is yeah, right? Ruelia. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, Ruelia. R U E L L I A. Right. And that I love. The ruby crystal is awesome. So, what I need, I, I went to a nursery and saw the petite Laura Pedlum that was almost uh-huh. like a ground. But I'm hesitant. Right. I don't. Can it take that much sun? Or is it going to oh, yeah. need a. Oh, yeah. No, uh, that the Laura Petalums have been greatly improved. Some of the early ones, like Blush, turned out to be a lousy plant because it was always chlorotic. But the newer purple-leaved forms, uh, they will take the sun. They will love the sun, and you get pretty purple foliage all the time, and then you get pink flowers in the spring. So, uh, if that's the plant you like, that would certainly that would certainly do well. Now, it sounds like, uh, of course, your firebush freezes to the ground every winter. I might think about putting something evergreen, like maybe uh, Salvia gregii, the hot pink form, uh, where you would have flowers about nine months of the year, and you'd have foliage year-round, would be one thing that I would think about doing. If you're wondering other plants that you could plant there that will take that, that hot, hot sun and give you color, um, you know, there, there, there are lots of things depending on how big you want them to get. Uh, there's Thryalis, which is a beautiful yellow shrub that's going to be evergreen most years and it pretty much blooms all summer. On the low end of things, you could plant, uh, the skull cap. Uh, I would not do the violet form. That's a shade lever, but the pink one especially loves the hot sun and it would do beautifully and give you blooms for lots of the year. Blackfoot daisy. Um, it's for me, it's kind of like your, uh, Artemisia. It's pretty for a couple of years and then it gets ratty, but it's very right. inexpensive. A blackfoot daisy blooms virtually all summer long. Um, I, and if you're looking to put in, uh, annuals, uh, it's hard to beat periwinkles. These new Cora varieties, uh, they're just unbelievable colors out there. And there's a new group of periwinkles that are called the Soiree, S-O-I-R-E-E, the Soiree series. They're a little like miniature flowers. But I know when they first came out, one of our growers gave my business partner one. She put it in a six inch pot and that plant had probably 50 flowers at a time on it all summer long so there are lots of fun annuals you can put out there uh other things that would be very happy in that hot sun even though they'll freeze back in the winter and come back out again there's some incredibly colored lantanas out there and there's a whole new series that's called the mound series there's florida mound which is really red there is uh there is another called Anne Marie, which is one of these multicolored ones. But it's just if you water them and feed them, it's very hard to beat 
uh, lantanas. The old original lantanas, they alternated producing berries and, or blooms and seeds and right. blooms and seeds and blooms and right. seeds. Most of the newer ones um, are sterile. They don't make the seeds, so uh, they just spend all their time blooming. But you've got an ideal situation. I We can go on and on. I, I, I can give you probably 50 different plants that will be happy in the sun out there. What what about the bottle bush? And the bottle bush is going to get too big. It, it's probably going to get too. Now the little one is called the yeah the dwarf one is called Little John. It has more of a blue gray foliage and a green foliage and a dark dark red flower. My only objection, well, two objections to it, is not as cold hardy as some, but chances are that's not an issue. But the big thing is it's in flower maybe for four to six weeks out of the year, and then it's just foliage the rest of the time. If I've okay. got a flower garden, I want something that's going to be in bloom 10 months out of the year instead of, uh, you know, at most 10 weeks. Right. But other, say, saying that, but Little John Bottlebrush is a beautiful plant, and if the majority of your plants are, are flowering, uh, it might be a pretty thing to add if you like it. Okay. And what about, um, I have never been very successful with verbena. Is uh-huh. I, what I do wrong, and it may be taking care of it too much, but is that another option? Well, here's... Here's the thing about verbenas. They're basically two types. The really showy, pretty ones are pretty much annuals. They rarely do well for more than one season. There are what they call the prairie verbenas that are, well, there's a pink one. There's kind of a lavender one. And they are perennial. Now, they're prettiest in the spring and kind of nondescript the rest of the time. But the really showy ones, the ones that are going to grab your eye when you walk into the nursery, uh, they're, they're mainly annual plants. They're really pretty. And if you don't expect too much from them then they're just fine but if you're looking for a verbena that's going to come back year to year that's not it yeah that's what i would like and 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 i am trying to find some color through the winter so um Mm -hmm. laura pet sounds like it might be it well as a salvia well, yeah, Laura Petalum is going to be is going to give you good colorful foliage uh look at american beautyberry calicarpa americana Um, It drops its leaves, but for at least all fall, uh, there's a purple form, a lavender form, and a white form, and it drops its leaves, and the the purple are by far the showiest, but it is just a mass of gorgeous uh, berries until the birds finally eat it off normally in January or so, but that's going to give you good winter color, but if you're really looking for color, you're going to have to go to annuals. You're going to have to plant some pansies or Johnny Jump Ups. I love Johnny Jump Ups. We used to have one Johnny Jump Up that was sort of purple and yellow in color, and nowadays there are about 30 different varieties of Johnny right. Jump Ups. Right. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> lots of choices out there, but the wintertime color is always going to be mainly annual. Okay, great. Let me let me tell you one more thing. I'm just I'm sitting here envisioning your beds. Another choice for beautiful foliage in a sunny spot like that, consider one of the dwarf nandinas, not the curly leaf form. That one does poorly here. But the flat leaf nandinas, one of them is called Harbor Dwarf, the other is called Harbor Bell. The only real difference is that Harbor Bell has flowers and berries, the Harbor Dwarf is just foliage. But in bright sun, Nandina foliage goes to a brilliant scarlet 
scarlet purple color in the winter and then it turns green again in the spring and uh, the colder it gets the more colorful it gets so along with your lower petal i don't know those two colors would be real compatible but if you're looking for a different plant that's going to give you beautiful foliage especially in a cold winter uh look at the uh at the dwarf uh flat leaf nandinas harbor bell and harbor dwarf now are the nandinas i've heard they're very invasive no, that's the old-fashioned one that our grandparents grew is invasive, but the newer varieties are much more mannerly. The compacta is a great plant, too, but it grows about five feet tall. I think that's bigger than you want in front of your three-foot rail. But, uh, no, the, the newer varieties, not an issue with uh, spreading and becoming invasive. Okay, great, because I've been digging out some that I do not want to go back to that. <laughs> well, the, these guys will be much more mannerly for you. Great. Okie doke. Thank you, Bob. Lots to think about. Let's go straight back to the phone lines, and next up would be Darla. Good morning, Darla. Good morning, Bob. I'm Good morning. I'm going to hurry because I know there are other callers that want to get on, but I have questions about planting things from seed uh, okay. that I usually uh, dig seedlings from uh-huh. and, and transplant those, but in the absence of seedlings, uh, the first one is a Mexican olive. You know, when they make the olive, it it drops to the ground. It's a, the white olive. Right. How right. do I prepare that for planting? Basically just, I mean, Mother Nature doesn't do any preparation. You could cut it open and take the seed out, but I would just plant that whole little olive. Plant it about uh, two inches deep in rich soil, keep it moist and warm. And uh, the botanically, it's called cordia. They're not fast growing. And they're, you know, we're north San Antonio is about as far north as we can plant them because of their lack of cold tolerance. But uh, to me, it's one of the most beautiful big shrubs, small bushes out there. But you don't need to do any preparation on that that so-called olive. <laughs> don't eat it, but uh, just plant it in. Just plant it intact. Yeah. I have two huge ones uh, in my yard. And I'm I, jealous. I, I just haven't had very many seedlings come up this year, so I, I've tried to plant the seeds before, but they never did do well. Can I go ahead and plant them right away when they drop? You know, you certainly can. I would. Uh, I would. Put the pots uh, in a fairly shady area, and like I say, keep them keep them moist, but not soggy wet. When you water them, water them really yeah. thoroughly, and then when it's good and dry on the surface, water again. If you happen to have, especially you know in the spring of the year when things are still a little cool, if you have a propagating mat that you can set your little pots on top of, that will really speed up both the germination and the growth. And if not, okay. that would be a great thing to ask for for Mother's Day, which is coming up pretty soon. <laughs> okay. The next one is Japanese oleanders. You know, they when they fall, they fall in a husk. And I don't know whether to take them out of the husk or plant them like they are. Now, I'm not familiar with an oleander that I would call Japanese oleander. What Describe the plant to me. They actually also call it a Mexican oleander. It has a okay. thin yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The ones I have are yellow. Right. And um, that that pod generally will open up, and it will have, you know, lots of little seeds inside of it. And so that one, I would open it and plant the seed much more shallow, no more than maybe about a quarter of an inch deep. And uh, it should you should have probably at least 50% of them will sprout and grow. Okay. Now, the last one I have a question about 
is a native plant called a heart leaf hibiscus or a uh-huh. Silipon del Monte. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, yeah. Beautiful plant. Isn't it? Uh, we, we dug them back in the 80s from a ranch down near Laredo and planted them in my mother's yard. And they uh-huh. are still coming up every year. And I've dug several of them and put them in pots waiting to give them to friends. But I, I wanted to know about their seeds. Uh, they well, also- uh, that's... Yeah, those you're you're much better off to grow from cuttings rather than from seed. Uh, you'll take your cuttings from the growth on the plant once it's matured. Keep your cuttings short, maybe four or five inches long. I like rooting them in perlite, the white volcanic material, P-E-R-L-I-T-E, and uh, they're yeah they're not difficult to root. That's another one that if you uh, uh, have a propagating match, you'll have almost a hundred percent success. Yeah. Well, you know, they actually come back from seed every year. Mm-hmm. They don't they don't come back from the root. And I wonder why why the planting of seeds are not successful. I just, I guess because the cuttings are so easy, um, I, I've never tried growing them from seed. I suspect you could grow them from seed. Again, I'd plant the seed maybe half an inch deep. I'd keep it good and warm. But uh, that's uh, these uh, these perennial hibiscus, which is basically what that heart leaf is. Uh, they just they, they root so easily from cuttings. That's that's how they're more commonly propagated. Mm. Well, I, I just usually don't have very good luck with with cuttings. Well, once somebody gives you once somebody gives you a propagating match, you're going to do a lot better. Yeah, I'm sure that's <laughs> probably true. Okay, sweetie. Well, thanks so much, and I appreciate it. And we'll let somebody else get on. Darlie, very kind. Have a wonderful day. You do, too. And uh, we'll move on and talk to Wes. Good morning, Wes. Uh, Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm fantastic. How about you? Uh, Very well, thank you. I'm looking for uh, an organic way to control prickly pear cactus. Okay. Prickly pear does not sprout from roots. Uh, If you can break prickly pear cactus from the ground um, and then dispose of the top, you will eliminate it. And the best, the easiest way to dispose of the top of it is to pile it and pour a fairly strong concentration of molasses over it. Uh, get just good, cheap agricultural molasses, diluted about 50-50 with water, and just drench the pile. I mean, most people that are doing this are going to use a bobcat or skid steer of some sort. And uh, like I say, you've got to break it free from the ground. You don't leave any of the stem in the ground because that will sprout. But if you break it free from the ground, it does not re-sprout from roots. When you put the molasses on the portions that you've put into a pile, it simply rots before it can sprout up again. And that's uh, that's the best way I know of eliminating it. Now, some People will use the uh, propane burner. They simply call it a pear burner because that's what they're doing with it is, uh, you know, burn the spines off of it and then let the cattle or goats or whatever eat it. Uh, the problem is it tastes so good to the cows that then they go back to it and start eating it with spines on if you do it too often. But uh, short of doing that, just uh, uh, just cut it off ground level. And if it's in a small area, uh, you know, you can uh, you can do it with a grubbing hoe. Uh, break it down to where you can then just grub out that last 12 inches or so. If you're trying to move a big plant without getting stuck, uh, get an old garden hose or something and just wrap around it and drag it to wherever you want to put it in a pile. But then the that strong molasses will just make it rot away before it has a chance to sprout. 
Awesome. Yeah, that, that's the piece I've been missing is, uh, is the molasses piece. Uh, yeah, because well, uh, otherwise, otherwise every little pad will make a whole new plant. Uh, yeah, indeed they do. <laughs> well, great. That sounds easy enough. I, uh, Very good. Do you, do, you, do you run cattle? Uh, no, we don't. We uh, we run Barbados sheep. Uh, so okay. I don't know if they want to eat that or not uh, without the flies. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I would try it. The only reason I was asking is if you have cattle, you probably have a molasses feeder, lick feeder out for them. And uh, the guy that fills a lick feeder, if you just leave him some uh, jugs out there, he can he can fill those up. And that's that's the cheapest molasses on the market where you're going to need a fair amount of it. And uh, but other than that, you get it in any good feed store, any good nursery. Very good. Well, have a good day. Thanks again. You do the same, Wes. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Goodbye. All right, let's get started with Brian. Brian, if we get interrupted by news, we'll come back to you. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. I called in yesterday um, to, to your store uh, and talked to one of the nice ladies there that answers your phone. And I've got a problem with cut ants on my um, nectarine tree. And they're uh-huh. running about 30 feet under my neighbor's yard uh, fence, and I haven't went over to investigate where the mound is at. But sure, she told me to use wetting sulfur on the mound that, once I find it. You, yeah, wettable sulfur. But if you're what I would do on a tree, now it's not going to help if they're eating your begonias or something like that at ground level or even roses. But where you have a tree. Uh, the best way to stop them until you can eliminate them, wrap for maybe a foot up and down the trunk, either aluminum foil or plastic wrap around the trunk of the tree, of the nectarine, and then get this material called tangle foot. It's the stickiest stuff you have ever seen. It makes axle grease look look like hand lotion. But uh, you, you get it in a little tub, looks like a cottage cheese tub. Take a tongue right, depressor right. or something like that and make a band of it two or three inches wide. You don't put it directly on the bark. It can actually damage the bark. But that's why you wrap the trunk with aluminum foil or plastic wrap put a band of this tangle foot around it it stands up to weather and everything else and the ants absolutely cannot cross it then you can go looking for the mound and go after it with the sulfur but uh you know you'll stop them instantly with tangle foot my my main concern about everything is is they beat a path Right through uh-huh. the vegetable garden, and they're walking right beside 14 tomato plants. Okay. Well, they're not going to go after those. Let me do this. Uh, let me get uh, Chris to put you on hold. I'll come right back to you after the news. We'll talk a little bit more. All right. We are back to gardening. And let me quickly say before we go back to the phone lines to uh, do remember that there are a lot of people who are out of work, hopefully just temporarily. A lot of folks in this area can use a little bit of help when it comes to getting the food to feed their families. And KTSA is working hard to help with that process. Trey's uh, drive uh, to help prevent hungry or prevent hunger it's just it's a really neat deal you go to ktsa.com and learn all about how you can help we're also doing a program looking for everyday heroes people that have just really stepped up to help each other help the community and you can also nominate people for that award just again go to ktsa.com to learn all about both of those very very worthwhile things the station's doing right now we were talking to brian about cut ants so let's go back there 
one more time. Uh, Brian, the, the, that's the reason, really, you know, when we were talking about the fact that these ants just, I mean, they it's like soldiers. They just march along, each one walking in the footsteps of the other. They're not likely to go after tomato plants, but they may go after pepper plants and some other things, and that's why it would... Or I you can't say I've ever seen them on my cucumbers, but I don't have many, okay, you know, up in my yard proper. So I doubt that's going to be an issue. But when you can do get with your neighbor and try to track them down, a lot of people. And again, the the way the sulfur works, the cut ants have like an underground chamber. They're not actually eating those leaves. They're taking those leaves below ground, and then they're eating that fungus. Yeah, but uh, a lot of people are finding that if you simply flood that mound, that that seems to eliminate them. If you flood it a couple of times, and uh, depending on you know the area of the yard, uh, uh, you know that might be the place to start. If that doesn't eliminate them, then the wettable sulfur is a real good idea because it uh, kills the fungus that they feed on. Yeah, I went to a local uh, nursery yesterday. And they didn't have wettable sulfur, but they had sulfur granules. It was about 90% sulfur. Yeah. And I put the wet in a bucket and mix it with water with a, with a mixing unit on, on my drill like I use for mixing drywall mud and stuff. You can, but it's... Yeah, it still won't work as well as the wettable. Try try a hardware store. If the nursery doesn't have it, a hardware store doesn't, or usually does. If they don't have it, okay. then go with your granular sulfur. Uh, it's just that it's hard to get it. The wettable is specifically made to penetrate uh, through the soil and or through whatever you're putting it on. So wettable would be liquid. They also had some liquid sulfur. And I, but it wasn't near as strong, and I didn't yeah. know if that would work. So I didn't I, find I, a wettable sulfur and, and, and stick with it. Yeah, if you can find it, that would be the best way to go. I've not tried the liquid. Um, I, you know, it, it might be worth trying if it's not too expensive because it doesn't have to be real strong. The wettable sulfur is always 50%. In fact, it'll say sulfur right. 50W, which stands for 50%. Oh, okay wettable and uh the liquid might work if you can't find the wettable you might give it a try okay um well there was one other thing i was going to ask you now and now i forgot it so (laughs) i've been that important well when you think of it call me back or make a note or whatever because i'm always here to help you are you guys open again today we are open every day. We won't close again uh, till I think maybe Memorial Day we close. But uh, our hours are slightly shortened. We're here nine to four because we do we do a lot of uh, sanitizing and things. On it, it takes time. On on Sundays we're open ten till four. But uh, the city monitors us. They inspect us, and as long as we keep it to the outside cash registers and get people to socially distance, we'll be here for you. And very glad to be able to do so. All right, sir. Well, you have a great afternoon. Enjoy this rain. I, I was oh. hoping you wouldn't have problems hearing me because I'm under a metal roof right now, and it's raining pretty good. So. Oh, well, I'm jealous because we've had one little shower, and other than that, it's just been a little drizzle here and there. But, you know, it's uh, every day we're anxious to hope for, for that next good rain, so you enjoy it. Yes, sir. Thanks, Thank Brian. You, Bob. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. You too. All right, next up is Ron calling us from up in Branson, Missouri. Good morning, Ron. Hey, Bob. Uh, quick 
few questions here. Uh, <clears throat> I have like a four-inch pot that I seeded marigold seeds in earlier this year. They're uh-huh. up about three and a half inches tall, and there looks to be about two layers of uh, of what do you call true leaf. True leaves, yeah. The first one are called seed leaves because they're actually part of the seed, called cotyledons, and then uh, two sets of true leaves. How many little plants do you have in that four-inch pot? Way too many, and that's what I'm going <laughs> to ask. I guess I lost my ability to count. Something happened anyway. Uh, I want to divide them and put them like in uh, four packs, individual yeah. ones for the time that's being. That's fine. And Do it the soon. The sound is the soil is really soaked. We had a hard rain last night, and I forgot to bring the deck, little devils in. And uh-huh. uh, I'm wondering if that ground is real wet, is it still okay to separate them now and, and oh, yeah. plant them? Oh, yeah. I, I hope you used a relatively loose soil because uh, when, we are, when we're germinating seed in, in what I just call a seed tray, growing multiple plants, you sure don't want any soil that's real heavy clay because it's too hard to tease the little plants apart. But if they're in a good potting soil, uh, it'll actually be easier with the soil being moist. And uh, I, that's, that's a, real good, a real good project for, uh, for a rainy day. <laughs> now, quick uh, molasses. Um, how much molasses do you put, say, in a in a gallon? Uh, I I just got a small area, and I use mm-hmm. like a two gallon sprinkling can, and I'm wondering okay. how much molasses I should put in there. Okay, are we uh, are we just softening the soil? What what is our purpose of putting out the molasses? Well, uh, I haven't used it in the past, and and this is the first time I've used it. I'm just okay. Uh, the bed, the flower bed has nothing growing in it yet. I haven't planted sure. flowers in, and I was going to treat it. And uh, do you think that's a good idea to do it uh, oh. now? molasses will you'll never go wrong with it it's stimulating the good microbes in the soil we're always looking at a rate of liquid molasses about one to two tablespoons per gallon one to two okay yeah now if you were doing acreage we figure five gallons per acre but doing flower beds and lawns and things like that one to two tablespoons per gallon and uh your your soil will love you for it okay now if i want to put a mulch in that flower bed uh, instead of putting wood, is there a better mulch? I've heard you talk about like cottonseed or something, but I don't know if we can find that up here. No, I'm I'm not a big fan of cottonseed because every now and then it's still got a lot of defoliant defoliant chemical in there. Uh, just shredded up native hardwood is as good a mulch as you're going to find. If you want to make it a better mulch, you can mix a little bit of compost with it, maybe one part compost to six or eight parts of wood chips or wood fiber. And uh, that, when we add the compost and we turn it into what we call the living mulch, because the compost brings so much microbial life with it. But uh, I'm not a fan of pine bark and things like that. I, I like to use mulches that are made from the material that grows in that area because obviously your plants, your trees, things like that take up the nutrients that they need from the soil and when you're grinding up that mulch uh, you're just putting it back into the soil so if you're in an area with old alkaline soil, then East Texas pine trees not really going to do much for your soil, but if you're living in East Texas pine trees, then that uh, you know nice hickory or pecan or whatever you've got growing in your part the world's not going to help them much so uh 
many communities, uh, you know, will have what they call a brush dump where they actually grind up just yeah. material people are hollering in. You take that and mix it, like I say, about one part to five or six parts. Uh, you'll make you the best mulch you could possibly make. Okay. And one other quick question. My wife loves the guitar music that's on your program. Is there, <laughs> is there a CD? See, I imagine it's it, the music sounds like it's more local to San Antonio area than it is up here. As is a- as it is the guitarist, uh, his name is George Gaitan, G A Y T A N. And I'll bet you if you Google George Gaetan, he's got, I don't know, six, eight uh, albums out. He's music teacher at one of the private schools here is what he does professionally. And he's heck of a nice how guy. But spell, How did you spell his last name? G is in George. Yeah. A-Y-T-A-N. T-A-N. Pronounced, okay. Yeah, Gaetan is how it's pronounced. Okay. That's very good. Well, I sure appreciate the information, Bob. Thanks, and have a wonderful day. All right, back to gardening. Enemy James and Rodney and Joyce and Rosa and James is first. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Uh, it's just another uh, just another nice day out there. Going to be, a, I think, a very different day. I don't think you're going to need that jacket today, but uh, no complaints. It's it's a pretty spring morning in my area. Yes, sir. It's uh, it's as foggy as an Oregon. Oh. Spring out here, man. You can't see the fence line. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it was building as I was coming into town, and I'm afraid it may have contributed to, I don't know what was going on, but apparently really bad accident out on I-10. But So stay off the road and stay in the garden, and everything will be good. Oh, man, I just got back from H-E-B. I'm, I, I scored, man. I got a 12-pack of angels off. So I'm <laughs> Now, don't you be hoarding. For me, that 12-pack would be about uh, three months' worth, so uh, glad it worked out well this morning. Yes, sir. Are your guys were talking cactus. Are your cactus flowering yet up there where you're at? Some of the uh, the barrel cactus are. I'm not seeing much on the prickly pears, but the little echinocerus, uh, what is echinocerus, daisy canthus or something, the one they call rainbow cactus is, and that uh, big old uh, fishhook cactus is starting to flower with its yellow blooms. But I'm not seeing much in the way of the prickly pears in bloom yet, but it won't be long. Man, I really enjoy those flowers on those cactus prickly pears. Oh, they're, they're just, and, and so many different colors so many different shades from orange to yellow to almost a purple color it's uh, uh i spent you know spent some of my college times in a desert area in west texas and spent a few of my growing up years out in albuquerque i was talking to one of our employees about that earlier and uh in there and actually talking to chris my engineer back there and you, you develop a certain love for the cacti they have a beauty all their own for such a such a spiny plant yeah, even the ugly ones are pretty once in a while. Um, <laughs> You're I right. I to ask you uh, about uh, uh, Howard Garrett's bed preparation. There, Everybody's all over the map on that. Uh, but before I, I ask you about that, I wanted to say that I've got some really big green tomatoes in the hoop house, man. Oh, you're making me jealous and a lot of other people out there. Yep. Some of them look 10 12 ounce, man. I'm just got my fingers crossed. Um, 
those grafted plants seem to grow a little bit bigger earlier in the season. Yeah, and, you know, you've got uh, that good area for them to grow in where it's warm enough not to freeze but cool enough not to be fighting spider mites and things. So uh, you're you're going to be very popular with a lot of people in the very near future. Yes, sir. Um, you know, uh, everybody's all over the map on, on Howard's uh, recommendations for bed preparation, you know. Right, uh, right. Is it, can, you can't do that in five minutes, right? Tell us how to well, do it. You know, it's you're, you're looking at um, just three or four things when you're getting your beds ready. You want to have good texture to it. You want the soil to be open. You want to have organic material in the soil. And you want to have not only nutrients, but you want to have some of your rock powders, rock minerals, whatever Phil Callahan would have called it, that actually hold the nutrients in the soil. This idea of cation exchange capacity means that uh, that when you put your fertilizer on, obviously the plants can't use all of it at the same time. So you want to have things in there that are going to keep it from leaching away and going away like the like the synthetic fertilizers do. So, you know, there, there are lots of different things that you can add and kind of how much you add depends on how much time you have and how much money you want to put into it but uh the things that i think are pretty much essential i love putting a little bit of dry molasses because that brings the energy in for the microbes i love putting in a good compost if you're trying to loosen up a clay soil you know quickly and beyond that for trace minerals uh and and partly for the cation exchange the, uh, bob what about the uh the cornmeal. He, he always talking about it. Yeah, I love cornmeal because it grows the uh, beneficial varieties of trichoderma, and that knocks out cottony root rot along with uh, most of the other fungal pathogens without hurting the the uh, the good fungi. So yeah, I think cornmeal's a good idea. And um, then once you get beyond that, then you can think about adding this product called azomite. It's got like 90 different uh, minerals and beneficial compounds in there. A little bit of granite or a little bit better still, lava. Lava is one of the best cation exchange agents that we can put in there. And then we've got uh, things like humates. And uh, I'm everything I'm reading, I haven't really been specifically adding humate for long enough to to tell you how it works. But, you know, Stuart's been putting humate in the Medina products for you know, as about as long as Medina's been around. So, and and the the big the good news is that um, that they are producing a dry humate, and there are about three or four different companies doing it now at a very very reasonable price. And you know, another thing that the people have done for thousands of years is putting in this material they call biochar, which is kind of partially burned carbon. It's like you know burning. Uh, wood in the absence of oxygen and you end up with a real high grade carbon that retains I was reading about it there's an article that the Arbor Society put out and it's like how it helps increase the amount of air in the soil how it helps uh, 
detoxify some nasty stuff that may be in there. And it also, biochar stimulates uh, this what we call systemic uh, induced resistance, which uh, makes plants more resistant to a lot of different fungal diseases. So, you know, how much or how little you put in kind of depends, again, on the money you want to spend and how good or how bad your soil is. But if you keep in mind what you're trying to do is build texture, keep oxygen in the soil, build organic material in the soil, and then, uh, you know, help with uh, the micronutrients and the exchange capacity of the soils, that's what you're trying to do. The cornmeal is great because it helps detoxify with a lot of the more damaging fungi that may be out there. So um, it's people are kind of all over the map as to what all to do, and uh, I think you can do part or all of it. Okay, well, I just wanted to kind of narrow it down because uh, people are all over the map, as you say. Sure. Uh, if if there were the only things that I feel like you need to continue to add periodically are going to be things like the cornmeal and the molasses. If you're putting in some lava, if you're putting in some azomite, even if you're putting in the dry humates, those are going to be in the soil for, you know, 50 years. And so at that point, all we're doing is adding our fertilizer, obviously, but of the other things you're adding, you're not going to have to re-add a lot of things other than the cornmeal and the molasses. Those are the two things that are used up. Most everything else we talk about in bed preparation acts more like an enzyme. It doesn't go away. It mediates various uh, reactions that take place in the soil without being used up, I guess would be the, the simple way to put it. Well, thanks for giving us the uh, uh, info on that, Bob. I sure appreciate it. I've been getting it's a, a lot of questions, and I thought I'd just get it from you, you know? Well, it's a lot easier to do in a classroom with a blackboard, but since we're not allowed to do any gatherings at this point, I just try to paint a mental picture, and I know sometimes I'm better at it than others, but I sure hope that helps you, James, because we appreciate all you do to help us. Okay, well, thanks for uh, thanks for your show, and thanks for all your good advice. Oh, man, I got a, a new squirrel out here. I got to go <laughs> You go take care of him, or he's going to be after those green tomatoes, and that's not yeah, a good thing. A little, little <laughs> rascal. Okay. Yeah. All right, sir, good to talk to you. Let's move on and talk to Rodney. Rodney now. Good morning, Rodney. Good morning, Bob. How are you today? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? All doing good. I've got two questions for you. One is compost tea. <clears throat> okay. I started making my own compost tea for the lawn last year. Yeah. Is there any benefit I'm getting this year from my application last year, or how often should I apply compost tea to the yard? Well, compost tea, the main thing that compost tea brings to the yard is microbial life, primarily beneficial right. bacteria and beneficial fungi. And so... If you continue to feed those microbes with things like molasses, with things like some liquid seaweed, um, then, you know, they, they're in the, in the ground. And as long as you feed them and take care of them, they're going to always be there. Uh, if your soil is really poor and if you're not following up with, you know, good organic products and good organic fertilizers and things. And sometimes it's good to boost them back up with some fresh compost tea. But basically, compost tea is an inoculant. And if you've got your soil in really good shape, they're going to stay there perpetually. But uh, most of us start with less than perfect soils and Sometimes we don't <laughs> we don't remember to do all the things we should do. So I would say that regular compost tea applications in a healthy 
soil, you're going to sort of have the law of diminishing returns. You get to a point where you've done all the good you can do and you can't make it any better and you just feed what you have. So, uh, um, you just kind of have to judge by your soil and your program. You're never going to go wrong with compost tea. It's always going to help. And sometimes you may have specific disease problems that it will help to apply compost tea to. Uh, Dr. Lane Ingham, uh, who has a company called the Soil Food Web, they actually do designer compost tea. And a peanut farmer will call them, and he's got one specific fungus, and she will help design a compost tea that knocks out that particular fungus and then somebody may call growing soybeans somewhere else and she may kind of does help design a different very specialty tea but for most of us we're making a general purpose tea and uh, just applying it as we can sure and my second question real quick um what's the best way to prevent the horned worms tobacco worms whatever you want to call them on tomatoes i'd rather be proactive than reactive uh, make yourself some uh, a spray with uh, BT, Bacillus thuringiensis. The thing that they don't tell you on the BT bottle is add a little bit of molasses to it, maybe at the rate of a teaspoon per gallon. Because, of course, okay. Bacillus, it, it is a bacteria. Molasses is food for bacteria. And I have found, and I've been growing tomatoes for a lot of years, I like to follow up uh, with spraying some molasses and seaweed because that stops the spider mites later on. And strictly anecdotally, it seems that I never have to spray a second time. And I suspect it's because I'm, I'm adding a little bit of molasses every few weeks through the summer months. And typically, if I spray my tomatoes and peppers once in the spring, I won't have hornworms for the entire season. If you're just using the BT alone, you may have to respray regularly. But uh, I find, you know, one application usually carries me through the entire growing season. Okay, great. All right. Thanks a lot, Bob. Oh, by the way, sure, do listen. Enjoy listening to you live from Shades of Green. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I've got two black labs here uh, answering the questions that I have trouble with. And uh, Dr. Kirby will be along, and they'll have him out as well. So the cats are just sitting here asleep. They're not helping. But uh, the labs are are good companions. And you totally understand what I'm talking about, Rodney. So you get out and have a wonderful Sunday. You too, Bob. Thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. Back to gardening on a nice uh, spring Sunday morning here in South Texas. And uh, it is pretty out there. It's a little bit bit of moisture here and there, but not bad at all. It looks like we're back to the ladies' hour again. We're going to talk to Joyce and Rosa and Lisa and Christy. And Joyce is first. Good morning, Joyce. Hi, Bob. Well, hi. Excuse me. Go ahead. No, no, I was just saying good morning. And I, I Hannah speaking to you. You see there, see there, she said, I knew that it was Joyce on the phone. So she's thanking you for all that you do for her. Oh, my goodness. Well, when your caller called about the, the, the guitar music, uh-huh. it reminded me of the cutest little cartoon where two doggies were talking to each other. And one said, you know, there are certain sounds that are very pleasing to a dog's ear. My favorite is when my dad plays soft guitar music. Do you have any sounds you particularly like? The other one said, oh, yes, my favorite sound is split. When you open a can of dog food, that's the sound it makes when it hits my dish. Yep, and uh, I know a couple of labs, uh, although they get to eat dry food, but they would say that uh, they would say the sound of the cup rattling around in the bag of dry dog food is uh, definitely their favorite sound. <laughs> well, my question is about... Uh, <laughs> 
uh, old-fashioned things like uh, air layering and taking cuttings. I've listened mm-hmm. to you, and I've heard it, and it seems so simple. And yet last year I tried several times on citrus to take uh, some cuttings and to do air layering. And I simply, the air layering just didn't happen. when I, And I left it on, one of them six uh-huh. months or more, and it just, uh, am I... I want something specific about the size and how deep and how big to make the cutting. I may have done it, try to do it on too small a branch. Uh, well, it's citrus cuttings are hard to root, and uh, not very many people are successful. And I don't really encourage it as much because. You know, the reason they graft citrus uh, so often is because that seedling rootstock puts down a real long, strong taproot and makes a much stronger plant. And if you grow them from cuttings, then you're propping them up for the first couple of years till they really get a good root system. So air layers are a little bit different. You're very definitely getting a better root system. But here's Here's one of the things that I think is is really important on the air layers. First of all, you do need to use, I would use wood that's the size of a pencil or bigger. I don't think you'd be real successful with a smaller limb than that. I would remove the bark on one side of the limb for about two inches along there and realize that where the roots are going to come from is going to be right at the edge of the bark that's left behind in the open area. That's where the cambium is exposed but not drying out, and that's where your roots are going to come from. And the the big thing about citrus, because they are much slower than something like a fig to form roots, that sphagnum moss that you wrap around is likely to dry out. And if you're doing an air layer on a citrus, you may have to peel back the foil or the plastic two or three times and re-moisten the sphagnum moss. Uh, you can do that with a turkey baster. You can do that uh, very effectively with a syringe if you're comfortable in using something like that. But once that sphagnum moss has dried out, it's no longer going to encourage rooting. And so even though you left the layer on there for six months, unless you went back every three or four weeks and re-moistened the sphagnum, uh, it really wasn't doing a whole lot of good. So that's the one thing I would change in your technique, and I think it'll make you very successful. And, of course, it works best in warm weather. Okay, what, like June? Uh, really, May, June, July, even into August are fine times. Now, on on the when you said pencil size, mine were much small. I, I, that's yeah. one answer there. You say about two inches. What about a, an eighth? Do you go through? Well, there, I'm being very confusing. There's the bark layer, and then it gets the green layer. Mm-hmm. Do you go through the green layer or not? No, you leave the green layer exposed. You peel the bark back, uh, and, you know, it usually, it'll come off as sort of a sheet, and uh, it'll actually be green to beige underneath that, but... uh, uh, and what I have done periodically, and I actually think it's a better way, but it's harder to explain, but I will make two slits parallel to the direction of the stem, uh, maybe a fourth of the way around the stem, uh, separated, that would make it uh, separated by, a, uh, what is that, a 90-degree portion of the 360-degree thing. And I will take a toothpick 
and just rather than cut that piece of bark all the way off, I will sometimes just work that toothpick, or I guess you could use a paper clip or something in, and I'll just slide it up and down so I've separated that layer of bark to the layer underneath, and then I'll sometimes leave that little quarter of an inch of a toothpick stuck in there to hold it open, and uh, I feel like that helps, but, you know, when you're doing, uh, when the commercial people are doing, and, and these guys really know what they're doing they can do an air layer in less than 60 seconds and probably in less than 30 seconds and it obviously takes a lot more time to do it slowly and carefully like that but uh that's when i first learned to do air layers that's the way i did it and i was usually pretty much 100 percent successful now there are some trees that just don't air layer well but citrus you should be able to get a good air layer on Okay, that's the answer. I didn't have it much too small a branch and then uh, didn't separate it enough, I'm sure. But uh, if I go back to pencil size, uh-huh. then the, the outgrowing growth and is going to be like maybe a foot and a half long. Do you, do you leave that all intact or do you cut that back? Well, because you're forming a pretty good root system before you cut it away from the parent plant, you generally don't have to cut it back. If it were, you know, if it were excessive, what I might do, I mean, if it were just really, really, really leafy, I might strip off half the leaves. I'm going to leave a lot of leaves there because they're what carry on the photosynthesis and make the sugars that the plants need. But if it were just overly leafy, I'd just strip like half the leaves off uh, rather than actually cut a portion of the cutting back. Make sense? This is a calamondin that is a seedling that's been there for yeah. years, and this is the first year it had fruit. And uh-huh. while it's very seedy, it's very sweet, and it's the most delightful. <laughs> Sit on the porch and spit seeds snack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds very delicious to me. Well, that takes care of it for me today. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it very much. It's always always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, Hannah's sitting over here wagging her tail. I truly think she somehow knew who I was talking to. So she says good morning as well. Maya's just asleep, but uh, Hannah says hello. (laughs) Joyce, thank you for everything. I'll do it. I'll do it. Chris, let's uh, move on to Rosa. Good morning, Rosa. (laughs) Good morning again. I forgot to ask you this just from my friend. It's about that tetragrammaton, that card. Uh-huh. She wants, she wants to know when does she hang it up in the tree and how high does it have to be? Well, and of course, what we're talking about are the little trichogramma wasp, and we use those to control caterpillars because it's, it's a tiny little non-stinging wasp, and it destroys caterpillar eggs. So the timing depends on which caterpillars we're trying to control. Those caterpillars we call gallworms or leaf rollers come out very early in the spring, usually in late January, so we're usually putting out our trichogramma while it's still in January. For the pecan nut case bearers, which typically come out in April and May, two generations of them, we put them out um, pretty late March uh, so that they're active right at the time you want to be killing the case bearer eggs. And then for the webworms that come out in the summer months, we can put the trichogramma out late May or even early June. Kind of depends on the weather. We can put them out a little bit later. So we kind of do the timing depending on what our principal target is as far as the caterpillars. Now, because it is a flying, a little flying,
flying wasp, it doesn't matter how high off the ground you put it. Now, you want to get it off the ground, obviously, because you don't want fire ants to come in and eat those little moth eggs before the wasps hatch out. But uh, it doesn't have to be way up high in the tree. It uh, and and I some people will pin that little card that has all the wasp eggs or the moth with the larvae developing in it, the, the moth egg with the larvae inside of it. Some people will pin it to the tree. If you do that, you have to dab it with Tanglefoot or Vaseline or something so the fire ants can't get to it. I just use a little short piece of monofilament fishing line, maybe two feet long, and then I'll just tie it to a convenient branch on the shady side of the tree. But it really doesn't matter how how high or how low it is, as long as it's off the ground. Uh, It does need to be on the shady side, and those little wasps will hatch and fly off and do their job. Wonderful, wonderful. A while ago you were talking about that VT. And you uh-huh. said you should put a teaspoon per gallon of water with molasses, but how about the seaweed? Is that one teaspoon, too? Um, you don't really need to add seaweed when you're putting your BT out, but when I'm making a spray just of seaweed and molasses, I use two uh-huh. tablespoons of seaweed and one tablespoon of molasses. But now, as far as activating the BT, you don't need near, you don't need any seaweed. You don't need nearly as much molasses. I just put about a teaspoon per gallon of finished spray. Now, you're probably going to use uh, an ounce, depending on the formulation. You're probably going to use about an ounce of BT, but uh, then. And again, I don't measure it. I just put approximately a teaspoon in there and shake it up and spray. Oh, okay. Well, that's it. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great questions, Rosa. You're welcome, and thank you. Goodbye. Now, one thing about the BT, of course, uh, BT pretty much kills all caterpillars, so only spray it uh, where you need to control specific caterpillars. Don't go spray it all over your yard because, uh, it, you know, while those little trichogramma grow, go basically after the larvae of moths, which are not especially attractive except for the great big ones, um, BT will kill the caterpillars for a beautiful butterfly. So we only spray the areas we have a problem when we're using the BT. All right, back to the phone lines. About 10 minutes to get in three calls. I think that'll be about right. It'll be Lisa, Christy, and Mike. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Bob. Two quick Good questions. Morning. Okay. One is that I have acquired a frangipani vine. Now, I'm familiar <laughs> with growing my plumerias, but the vine is something new to me, and I'm just wondering because the card on it said that it would require full sun, if that's Texas full sun, did it? Does it give you a botanical name? I've never heard of a frangipani vine. Does it? Uh, does it tell you what the proper did, name is? But I didn't. I didn't write it down. <laughs> okay, my suspicion is that it is probably some sort of mandevilla or diplodenia because those have flowers that look a good deal like frangipani, but. Um, and now, yes, one, the, the card said that it had it, it resembled and it, it showed the picture of the of the flower that they use in Hawaii, subtropical, use the you know made for mm-hmm. lays that kind of thing, and they're identical to what a plumeria has growing on them. Uh, the leaves are you know, humongous. 
my my guess is that it's probably in our area morning sun afternoon shade would be the uh would be the thing for that but i'd I'd like to know about no more yeah know more about it at some point uh won't have time today but uh come back look up the name because i'd love to do some research on it and uh and see exactly what it is i, I it's just I, I love it when i see a plant that i've never seen before <laughs> and uh yeah, and there's some of them out there there's there's a new yeah, morning glory I've like never a, seen. It's got a tr- like a. It's got the vine that grows, mm-hmm. and the vine resembles like an Australian tree plant. It's okay. brown when it's fuzzy on the outside of it. Uh huh. <clears throat> and like I said, the leaves are huge. They kind of look like a fig leaf tree uh-huh. leaf. But and I that's why I bought it because I don't have one in my garden. <laughs> we'll learn together then. But uh, right. yeah, I would I would suspect that it's very tropical. It won't take any cold. But I would I would start it out at least with uh, morning sun and afternoon shade. Okay. Yeah. Because again, it said that it will survive a thirty to forty. I think your phone just cut out on us, uh, Lisa. Okay, something something happened on your cell there, but uh, I look forward to hearing back from you. That sounds like an interesting plant that I would learn to love to learn more about. I guess we'll move on to Christy next. Good morning, Christy. Good morning. How are you tonight? You know, it's just a wonderful day. Every day is a good day, but when uh, when we're warm enough that you don't have to bundle up, it's just pretty much ideal in my world. And this is this is going to be a nice spring day. It's beautiful to bundle up pulling weeds, though, so I don't mind that. Yeah. Uh, a comment and a question. After years, we finally made it out Shades of Green two weeks ago, and I absolutely fell in love with those fern trees. Where did they come from? Do they really grow here? They are beautiful. Now, are you talking about things you saw in the greenhouse or things planted no, here on the property? On the property, those, they look like ferns and their roots made like little fairy. Oh, okay. Places. Yeah, those, those are actually a tree called a bald, B-A-L-D, bald cypress. If you were to look it up, technically it's Taxodium disticum, but uh, yes, they are, uh, and and if you like those, uh, they call them knees, and that is an adaptation that particular tree can make that allows it to get oxygen into its root system even when the soil is very wet and compacted, and that's kind of what we started out with. Now, a lot of the cypress that are sold these days are called Montezuma cypress. They're a wonderful tree. They live two or three thousand years but if you like the uh if you like the unusual knees and all you simply want to ask for a bald cypress or a swamp cypress we planted these trees as tiny little trees about 39 years ago wow so do they grow um everywhere in texas or here in san antonio Oh no, they grow in Texas, Louisiana, Florida. They grow wild up and down the uh, Guadalupe River. Uh, many of the anywhere that you have 
moisture, running water that is year-round. You'll see them on the banks of uh, lakes. You'll see them on the banks of rivers. If you went in some of the best fishing country in the world over in Louisiana, you will see these things actually growing straight up out of the water, and then they'll be surrounded by these knees that come up out of the water as a mechanism to get air to the root system. But no, anywhere, they don't they don't grow in super dry soils. You'll not see them growing in Big Bend, for instance, uh, but you'll see them pretty much all the way from the Panhandle to the Gulf Coast. Oh, super. Thank you so much. They were so beautiful. Well, I'm glad you came to see us. I hope you enjoyed the whole nursery. Oh, yeah. We'll be back when uh, there's no COVID. <laughs> <laughs> we'll look forward to it, Christy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Come you. On. Have a good day. You do the same. Thank you. Yeah, it is a pretty place, and we're very flattered by how many people come in and say, I just come over here because it makes me feel good. If you need to just, you know, brighten up your spirits a little bit, just come wander through. I know the botanical garden's closed right now, but we're darn near as pretty as the botanical garden, and we'd love to have people come wander through whether you need anything or not. Uh, Let's finish up calls today with Mike. Uh, Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. I'm so Good morning, sir. And thankful for this foggy, drizzly, yucky weather. <laughs> it keeps it's gonna keep me indoors and I need the rest awfully bad. <laughs> yeah. You sound like me. People talk about uh, you know, I hear all this about all the problem of people being bored. I tell you, I've said that if for whatever reason, I certainly hope I don't have to self-quarantine. But if I did, I've said I'd probably get caught up on my gardening for the first time in 30 years. So uh, I understand needing to stay in and catch your breath every now and then. What's going on in your world today? Well, I took your advice about putting out dry cornmeal on what I suspected to be a <clears throat> take-all patch. Uh, uh-huh. Uh, it does have uh, runners grow, uh, starting to grow in it. Good. Will take-all patch or a brown uh, patch, will it die off on its own? It dies off. A uh, brown patch dies off on the, in the heat. Uh, take-all patch typically dries dies off as we get into drier weather. Take-all patch is more tolerant of heat. Um, so uh, the brown patch is easier to get rid of. The other nice thing about brown patch is it never kills all the grass. There's usually plenty of live runners left behind to fill back in. Take-all patch, which is not that common, uh, can kill everything. So if it's a very big area, sometimes you have to go plant a few new little plugs back in there. But, uh, it, yeah, the cornmeal, usually one application is enough to take care of it. Well, old Charlie came by the other day and actually helped me rake away the leaves. Uh I've got three or four big, huge bags uh, so I could get to the ground. Uh, Got the leaves off, and I spread the uh, dry cornmeal out. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was going to use wet cornmeal soaked overnight, but she said just just use a dry cornmeal. It's easier, and then just water it down. Yes, sir. Water it down. If we didn't have this rain, I'd just go ahead and water it down, huh? Yeah, it's, you know, it's all the water is doing is activating it because the cornmeal is not the magic. The magic is this beneficial fungus called trichoderma that grows on the cornmeal, and that's all you're doing with the water is just activating it. Cornmeal doesn't 
burn like chemical fertilizers do. Truly what they do is dehydrate. But all you're doing is just creating the ideal situation for the cornmeal to start growing the trichoderma. The trichoderma is what's going to knock out the fungal problem. Okay, well, I've got three deer licking on it right now. (laughs) And that's the other thing about wetting it down. Fortunately, the deer leave enough of it behind that you've still got enough to do the job. But watering it down makes it a little less attractive to them. So if we don't get rain in the very near future, I think I'd probably just do, you know, five minutes worth of watering, and that'll do the job for you. Okay, I do want to make a suggestion a lady came in uh, called in earlier about putting uh, rocks in the bottom of her uh pot yeah uh, or keep uh-huh, right yeah i have used uh i have used uh, soda cans or beer cans smashing uh-huh. them and it covers the hole so the dirt don't really just pour out but it still uh-huh. allows water to drain have you that that works fine there actually is a company that makes orchid pots they call it an air cone pot and they actually have something to be more like a (laughs) non-crushed beer can or whatever and um, I you know there's nothing toxic in aluminum and if there happens to be a little bit of beer left in the bottom that's actually good for the plant so uh and nothing wrong with doing that, and if you do it enough, people won't know how much you've consumed because it'll be buried in the bottom of the flower pot. I also want to report that for the last four or five days, I've been hearing a summer tanager. Oh yeah, oh and yeah. There, yeah. Yesterday, I actually saw him. Uh, they're so elusive, mm-hmm. but uh, I saw him up there, beautiful orange and red uh, uh, thing. Now the, the summer thing. The summer tanager is usually black and black and red, but uh, ask quickly because we've only got fifteen seconds. I just want to—I'm going to put out some Confederate jasmine. Can I mix uh, the passion vine in with it? I would not because the passion vine is deciduous and the jasmine will crowd it out. 